Well, for those of you uh, who have been absent, we're, we're still o- opening up the book of Mark. Uh, this is uh, the entire introduction. I'm not going to get into it. Some people say the introduction stops at verse 12, but no, it goes on till 15. Uh, that's the introduction to the book of Mark. So this is the last sermon in the introduc- introductory portion of this series. After this, instead of these little tiny, tiny, tiny little bits I've been biting off, we're going to get into some of the bigger stories. Because uh, the way Mark works, it's the whole. It's it's not like Paul, where you've got to get in there and just like break up the sentences into. It's the stories that matter. So th- this is uh, it as far as the introduction goes. So we're still in Mark chapter one. I know last week I preached on uh, nine through thirteen, but we're actually um, we're going to start there again. We're going to start in verse 9 again, but this time we're going to go all the way through 15. So let me read that this morning. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your service. We thank you so much for your, your church. We thank you for the, your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit that um, binds us one to another, that gives us this new life, that allows us to come here and participate not only uh, in, in, in the lives of one another, but in the life of the eternal triune God. We thank you, Father, for rending heaven and pouring yourself out upon us, We thank you for coming and meeting us here this morning. You know exactly what comfort we need, what conviction we need, what healing we we need. You know that we suffer, and you know that we sin, and we know that you are the great physician. You are sufficient, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe it. Through this word now, preach to us. I pray, Lord, that you would expand our faith, that you would renew our zeal for you, and that you would continue to sanctify us. We know that what you've begun in us, you will finish and we look to you to finish it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, in comparison to the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospels of Luke, Mark appears to have preserved no more than a fragment of the tradition of the temptation. Now, the reason that we say this, or the reason that people say this, highlights the very common error of reading Mark through the eyes of the other evangelists. Mark has, uh, has a long history of being read through the eyes of the other evangelists, and people interpret Mark through that lens, and I think uh, it's created a lot of errors over time. The Gospels are often preached as a kind of harmony. All the recorded accounts are brought together to give the fullest picture of Jesus' actions and teaching. The usual sermon on verses 9 through 11 would have brought what Luke and John had to say about the temptation, baptism of Jesus, and it would have brought it all in to bear on the on my preaching. And, and this is what you usually find. When you get commentaries, what they do is they take all the different stuff about the baptism and they just, and they just put it together, which isn't wrong. 
Uh, Jared's teaching a class like that right now. I think this is very important to actually understand everything about the baptism or temptation is to get all the information and, and put it together. That, that's very, very important. But what is often lost is the distinct voice of Mark. Uh, when I take what Luke said and I add it to what Mark said, I lose the voice of Mark. In fact, I lose the voice of Luke as well. I lose both of their voices. It's, uh, if you want a fresh reading of Mark, um, don't read it in harmony with the other Gospels. Just read Mark. Just read it uh, and, and take it for face value. What fascinates me about the books of the Bible are the uniqueness of them. Mark is not Luke. Mark is not John. And the harmony approach can deprive us of each of the evangelist's distinct points of view and purpose. Now, I, I'm not making a dichotomy here. Neither way is better. Uh, you should do both. But I think most of you would attest to the fact that what's most common now is this harmony approach. Um, people just take all the information and, and put it together, and that's what we hear. The, specific, the specifics of Mark's texts are instructive. Not just what, but how he writes is important. His method is as important as his content. The events move very rapidly. This is something I've pointed out before. I mean, look at what we're dealing with this morning. In verse 9, John is baptizing. He's out in the Jordan uh, with a bunch of people coming out because they want to hear him. And by verse 14, he's in prison. That, that is like, what happened? Right? There's no explanation about what happened. Why is he in jail? How did he go from way out in the Jordan to jail? We, we're given no information. We are introduced to Jesus in verse 9. And by verse 12, the whole story has shifted to him. What happened to John? We don't know. Now, what, what usually happens here, right, is we go to the other Gospels, we find out what happened, and we come and we think, Mark, why didn't you write more? What's wrong with you, Mark? What don't you know? Did somebody not tell you what happened? Is he just putting a bunch of random facts together? Or does he know perfectly well what happened, and he's leaving it out and not explaining it, because to him, and what he's attempting to do in this Gospel, it's not important to know. Maybe he's saving it for a chapter later on, which is, uh, I love, when you study history, it's very hard to deal with the ancients because they don't tell history like we tell history. We like chrono chronological events. Okay, in 1963, Teddy Roosevelt was, 1963, I'm sorry, 1863, Teddy Roosevelt was doing this. 1864, he was doing this. And that's not how the Bible historians write history. Um, especially with the Gospels. He's in Jerusalem, he's in Judea, he's over here, he's doing that. When did this happen? When did that happen? It's very difficult, which is why we like the harmony method. We like to, okay, let's actually figure this out. It's fascinating to me what Mark leaves out. It's as, it's, it's as helpful to us as what he puts in. Mark writes that Jesus, right? We're going to look at verse 12 and 13 now. Now think about this. This is what he tells us, and he doesn't explain anything. Mark, uh, Mark writes that Jesus was cast into the wilderness for 40 days, that Jesus was tempted by Satan, that Jesus was among the wild animals, and that angels ministered to him. Now, I know we all know a lot about this episode because we've read the other Gospels, but let us consider just the text of Mark. Mark wants you to ask questions and to ponder what it might mean. Right? This is something he does throughout the whole book. Who is this guy? What is going on? Who is this Jesus and what does it all mean? Mark does not want to spoon feed you. He's not going to, um, he's not like Paul where he's, he's writing out this extraordinarily lengthy description of like say love because he wants you to understand it perfectly. 
he, he's writing a few things and he's hoping that you have, trying to figure out how it's all connected are going to fill in the parts that he left out. What is the significance or connection between the baptism and the wilderness temptation? What is the significance of 40 days? Isn't the temptation of Jesus an assault on Satan, or as is usually taught, that Jesus is assaulted by Satan? Right? This is a perfect example of this. We all think Jesus is standing around and and Satan goes after him. But I think what Mark describes here is a situation where the Spirit is saying, hey, now that you're on board with the program, now that you're ready, now that you're anointed, let's go get that guy. And he immediately goes out in the wilderness to attack Satan. It's the exact opposite of what we think. How was Jesus tempted? Mark doesn't say. What was the result? Mark doesn't say. What role did the wild beasts play? Again, Mark doesn't tell us. How did the angels minister to him? What does that mean exactly? Did they have to bandage him? Did they have to feed him? Do the angels minister to Jesus because he lost? Is that why they're there? Who won the battle? This context of Satan and Jesus, who won? Who was victorious? Why are there no more details and no finality? What does it have to do with you? What does this scene have to do with you? At some point in history, somewhere in the first century, uh, Jesus goes out and has a battle with Satan in the wilderness, and we don't really know, apparently, from Mark what happened, so why does it matter? What does this have to do with you? Who is the mighty one that John preached about? It doesn't seem like Jesus at this point. What is Mark's point? The absolute brilliance of this book is that it puts so much on you, the reader. You have to do all the work. (laughs) The reader cannot be passive while reading the Gospel of Mark. Mark is reporting some astounding things, and he leads the reader by a barrage of unanswered questions deeper and deeper into the story, which is imminent and alive in the reader's hands. Right? The story comes alive. If you, if you slow down and really think about what's being said and not said, the point is that you slow down and ponder what's being said. Mark is often dismissed as a simple paraphrase of the Gospel of Matthew for the reason that it's so brisk and episodic. But Mark's genius is the seeming choppiness because it's not actually choppy. It's not as choppy as it seems. It, it, it seems, uh, if you're just like racing through it because I'm on this reading program and i got to get through three chapters today, to just be this choppy mess. You are supposed to fill in the gaps by making determinations and judgments about Jesus in your own life. That's the point. That's actually the point of the Gospel of Mark. Peter preached the Gospel that Jesus was the Lord and his audience's response was, what shall we do? What does this text say about Jesus? What does it say about you? And the question ought to be when we get up from here is what ought we to do? Because in, right, once you know who he is, once you know who you are in light of that, the obvious thing then is what are we supposed to do about it? Without being, right, you can't do. Uh, he, he thoroughly, thoroughly covers who he is and who you are. The question that's left at the end is what are you to do about it? So let's open this up. Let's get into this bad boy here and see exactly what it is that Mark is talking about and not talking about. 
In Genesis, we go all the way back to the very beginning. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters like a bird. God spoke the world into being. Humanity was created and the human history began. What was the very next thing that happened? Satan tempts the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. Hmm. Interesting. Now, here in Mark, we again have the Spirit that looks like a bird, the water, God speaking, the recreation of humanity. History reaches its summit, and immediately the pattern continues with Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus says, the fullness of time. I'm not going to get into that phrase at this moment, but when he says that, it's hard to describe the f- like how big that Greek word is. The, the fullness of time has come, Jesus says. This is something all, all new. It's brand new. Total recreation of the world. And just like the first creation, where you have the water and the bird and God's voice, here you have the water, the bird, and God's voice. So if, if he's the new Adam, what has to happen next? Well, we all know. Well, this means he's got to be tempted by Satan. There's got to be some conflict. And again, unlike the garden where Satan comes to them, Jesus goes out to the wilderness to find Satan. He's looking for a fight because man was born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, it says in Job. And Jesus is the ultimate man. He gets it. Where's the trouble? (laughs) The sequence is full of typological echoes from all over the Old Testament, right? Mark is saying so much with so few words. After Israel had come through the Red Sea, they were led by the Spirit of God into a wilderness for 40 years. Hmm. amongst wild beasts, where the angels of the Lord came and not only gave them manna, but gave them the word of God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There are also the great duos from church history, from the Old Testament. Just as Moses gave way to Joshua, the mighty one, Elijah gave way to Elisha, the mighty one. Saul gave way to the mightiest of them all, David. And now John gives way to Jesus, the mightiest, mightiest, mightiest of them all. The greater prophet, the greater Elisha, the greater Joshua, the greater David, inhabiting stories about angels and double portions of the spirit, encounters with wild animals, the Jordan River, the rending of heaven, and divine intervention, as well as combat in a wilderness. All in four verses. The testing follows the baptism as its organic sequel. It's, it has to come next. There is no other way that the story could happen. Once he's anointed as the son of God, once God declares his love for him, the only thing that could happen now is a conflict. This is what he's been getting ready for his entire life. He's not going to wait. He's not going back to Jerusalem. He's not going to just go back and be a carpenter now. He's going to take on his actual calling. Bring me to Satan. And and at this point, don't even, I'm not even going to start with demons. I'm not going to start with the low level stuff. I, I want Hitler. Bring me the one at the top. I want the real bad guy. That's that scene in, um, Saving Private Ryan. The sniper is like, if you could just get me within a hundred yards, I could make this whole thing stop. (laughs) Right? And this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, I'm not messing around. Take me to the top. The spirit who descends at the baptism takes hold of Jesus and sends him out into the wilderness. 
Now, many translations render the word, the spirit, or render the phrase, he drove him out or forced him out. It is the same word used for the expulsion of demons 11 times in the book of Mark. I think Mark is being uh, I'm coy, maybe, right? Just as Jesus is driving out all these saving uh, spirits, the spirit is driving Jesus to confront the spirits. I, I find that moderately humorous. Jesus is not wandering around. He's not seeking a secluded place to pray. He is driven by the Spirit of God. The Spirit does not lead Jesus out of the wilderness, but deeper into the wilderness. As we've already said, Jesus has come out to John in a wilderness, and now the Spirit drives him even further into the wilderness. Because Jesus is God's Son, because Jesus is the Christ, because Jesus is the beloved of the Father, Jesus is driven to the wilderness to be tempted, Faith is the point, trust is the point, obedience is the point, conflict is the point. Not easy, safe selfishness. Right? Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm king now, where's my throne? Take me to the temple. That's not what he does. He goes further and further away from security, from comfort. Is the father leading Jesus out there to kill him? Right? That's what we need to have happen, isn't it? Jesus needs to die so that the blood covers our sins. Is that what's going on here? Is he going out there to further humiliate Jesus? Here's a question. Can Jesus be humiliated any further than he already is by walking around as a man? Jesus has humbled himself. Jesus is led by the Spirit. He is trusting and obeying the Father. What is the Father's response to such obedience? My good and faithful Son, here's some testing. Here's some conflict. Now, this is what I was talking about last week. This is why we don't like to follow the Spirit. Because we think the Spirit ought to lead us to the Barca Lounger and the Bud Light. Right? That'd be nice. A good comfy chair and some beer. But that's not what the Spirit does. Because when God loves you, when you are His, when He is delighted in you, He sends you into conflict. Jesus was given the ministry of reconciliation. He fulfilled it, and now he gives it to us. Now, the ministry of reconciliation, that's one of those, oh, Paul, that sounds so cute. Make me a kitty poster with that on it. Minister of reconciliation, kumbaya, my Lord, right? This is what we think of. But the ministry of reconciliation is you go into a relationship where the brother and sister haven't spoken in 25 years. The husband and wife who, can, who can't even stand in the same room together. The drug addict. Right? The guy who, can, who is losing everything because he can't stop watching porn. That's the ministry of reconciliation. It's the exact opposite of what we think the Christian life should be about. Which is why we're like, follow the Spirit, I think not. I think not. And that's why we need sermons like this. Band of Brothers. Anybody watch that show? I use a lot of movie references because it's easy. Uh, Winters is there, Colonel Winters. He's got his troops there in Holland, I think. And he says, okay, as soon as the smoke grenade goes off, we're all going up the hill there, and we're going to attack these people who, are, who, are, who have essentially caged us in. Well, he doesn't even wait for the smoke grenade to go off. He just goes running up there. And he gets up to the ridge, and, and sleeping before him is a battalion of SS troops. And what does he do? If anyone has seen it, what does he do? He, just, he puts his rifle to his shoulder and he just starts shooting them one by one. 
And it's quite a while before everybody gets up right there to help him. And, but he is just fighting because that's what he's sent there to do. And, and, and actually, the SS troops, who are supposed to be the top-notch guys, uh, at first flee. And then they realize it's just one guy and not the entire United States Army, and then they start shooting back. But by then, it's too late because everybody else has come up. We need sermons like this because we don't want the wilderness. We don't want the Ministry of Reconciliation, no matter what we say with our platitudes. What we need is somebody to go out there and to show us how it's done. What does assaulting the forces of evil look like? What does the Ministry of Reconciliation look like? It looks like being led into a wilderness to be tempted. The wilderness is a place of cursing throughout the entire Old Testament. Blessing in the Old Testament is associated with inhabited, cultivated lands that do not have wild beasts. In the wilderness, there is neither seed, nor fruit, nor water. I mean, Adam and Eve, right? Adam's got his wife, which is comfort. He's in a garden, which is comfort. And then he's assaulted there. Jesus has none of those things. He has no bride. He has no, there's no fruit trees. There's no river. There's nothing to eat. The reason he's fasting, I don't think is a choice. I, th- I think typologically it works, but there's nothing, he's fasting because out there where he is, there's nothing to eat and drink. He'd be like, man, this is really hard. You know what I'm going to do is just sit here in this barca lounger and drink some bud for a while, and then I think I'll be ready to take this on. There is nothing. There is no comfort. This follows with so much of the biblical theme of appearance versus reality, right? Why would the, the beloved son get sent into, a, into this kind of place where there's loneliness and despair, lacking in any kind of comfort? What, what we see is a man cursed, it's like Job's counselors. They see Job, and they're like, man, God hates you, dude. What did you do? I would not want to be Job, because Job has gotten himself into quite a lot of trouble. Well, uh, actually, um, God loves him very much. And what Satan says is, he doesn't love you very much. And God says, watch. And he takes away everything that Job has, and what is the result? Right, because... How things appear and what is really happening is something that, that's at the heart of Christianity. How things look and what is really going on, they're not the same. You, you take a, a nobody from Nazareth and you nail him to a piece of wood on a hill in, in a corner of the Roman Empire and you murder him and he's overcoming the world. Right? A drunk Lutheran, um, a, a drunk Luther. I like to say that because he was often called that by his enemies, right? He's had a little too much beer. He, he's a little too zealous for the Lord, and he goes and nails this thing on a door of the church that everyone's going to read, and what happens? Right? What, what does it appear? Well, that guy, who's going to take that guy seriously? Well, apparently everyone. And, and this is what God does. He does it all the time. And, and, and this is good and bad. We, we, we see the parents with the prodigal kids, and we think, man, God hates those people. What's really going on there? The, the guy who, who is um, a little distracted by the coworker can't stop comparing her to his wife. Right? What does it appear like? What is really going on? Right? We, we, we have Trump as the president. What is happening? <laughs> what, is, what does it appear like? What is actually going on? This is what 
um, reading the Bible and growing in wisdom and growing spiritual understanding is all about. There is the face, face value. You look, and this is what you see, but what's really going on behind it? Jesus is testing... Jesus' testing by Satan reveals that there are unseen, hostile powers at work in the world, which are engaged in cosmic struggle against God, and Mark uniquely portrays Jesus as the one whom God has sent to engage in conflict with Satan. The world is not what it appears. Behind what you see with your eyes of flesh is a reality that is only perceived by the spiritually minded. Let me read some verses for you here, because this is, this, we're modern people, we have reason, we have science, And so we don't like this kind of thing. We're not comfortable with it. But let me just read this for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that's usually where people stop. You were, but you're not now, right? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's not that you just walked around sinning. You were following a course of which there is a king. You were, you were in a kingdom with a king, and there were things going on behind what was going on, if you get what I'm saying. Ephesians six ten through 13. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I, re- I remember reading this. And, and I asked a pastor of mine at Mars Hill, like, what, what, like, do I buy that at the store? Like, is that like I buy like a cross and I get like a shirt or something? Like, I don't understand. He's like, um, meet me in my office at three o'clock on Saturday. <laughs> Right? We'll do a Bible study. Because what, what, do you, right? what does he mean? We're going to read the word, we're going to pray, we're going to sing, we're going to have fellowship, and those things are like putting on a bo- body of armor. So there's the things you're doing, which you're like, well, how does singing do anything? How does fellowship do anything? I'm busy. I have, you know, the kids got soccer practice. I got a lot going on. But what you're really doing isn't that. You're putting on the armor of God. Right? A mom sitting there in the morning with her coffee, reading Ephesians, is putting on the armor of God. There's what you see, and then behind it, what is really happening. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. through 4. Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's blinded them. Hebrews 2, 4, anyway, I, in the other Gospels where all, right, Jesus is going around healing all of these people who are physically blind, and all around him are all these Pharisees who are spiritually blind, and, and the way he plays with that is, is awesome. Because, the, right, he, they don't get, right, they just, they see the surface of it. Right, there is another blindness here that is deeper and, and more problematic, Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. Through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. So is he just out wandering around in desert? And Satan's like, oh, I guess now's the time I should go over there and have Adam. 
Or as, as soon as he's anointed, as soon as God says, this is the Messiah, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, Jesus is like, let's get down to business. Take me to him. Behind all the activities of men, there is a cosmic spiritual battle. Men are the means or pawns in Satan's war against God. Unbelievers think that they are free, that they can choose for themselves, that the world is uh, subjective utopia where the real problem with man is religion, the fetters that bind their potential of (laughs) self-realization. It's so true, right? Why are you uh, subjecting yourself to lifelong tyranny by having children and getting married? Why are you doing that? Be free like me. And then you look at how that goes. And how does that go? Now, I want to point out here that Satan isn't equals God. We're not, we're not in this world where, where we don't believe in dualism, where there's these two forces and they're equal. It's like Star Wars. You've got the, good, the, the Jedis and the Sith, and they're just kind of having at it all the time. It's not like that. Uh, Satan is not, he can't be everywhere at once. He is a created being. There's all kinds of limitations to what he could do, which is his strategy was to bend you so that he didn't always have to go following you around. It's not like Luther thought, right? Luther throws the ink pot at the wall because he sees the devil there. I think he drank too much beer. But that's, again, a story for another day, right? Satan can't follow you all around. And and I like Screwtape Letters, that book by C.S. Lewis. If you want to know more about this, read that book because that helps you understand what's going on behind what's going on. But what Satan wanted to do was to bend us so that he didn't have to follow us around. If I twist their wills, if I twist their flesh, if I twist their hopes, if I twist them into idol worshipers, what they'll do now is I don't have to be there because they'll always just be sideways. Their hearts will be idol factories. They won't work properly. And so there you go. And then if you get the first one, everybody who comes after that, bam. Satan actually has it pretty easy. Because he twisted all of us. And so what God had to do was come and make straight what was bent. And that's what he's doing. So Jesus goes right for the head. David goes right for Goliath. In this corner, we have the fallen angel. And in this corner, a nobody clothed in obedience and the spirit of God. In this connection, the cosmic language of Mark 1, 9 through 12 is important. It indicates that what happens on the plane of human decision in terms of John's call and Jesus' response to his call is an aspect of the struggle that we cannot see. That dimension of reality behind what we see and at the center of human existence. This is why when a paralytic comes to be healed, Jesus forgives his sins. I liked that story because he comes and he's like, heal me. And Jesus is like, okay, I forgive your sins. And there, you know, the guy's literally bent. He's like, well, okay, that's not what I meant. Um, but that sounds good too, forgiveness of sins. Madness and ep- epilepsy are of the devil. Sin has broken the world. And though there is suffering, the true problem isn't the trying or difficult circumstances, but Satan and his forces of darkness. Okay. The, the problem isn't the circumstance or the thing itself, but what lies behind it, right? That, that's why, like, people go and they're anxious and they give, and they, okay, here, take this pill and you won't be anxious anymore. Okay, well, what about the thing behind the anxiety, right? I, I smash the computer and then you don't have a porn problem anymore. Want to bet? 
I've been through that. Let's go over to your house and let's get rid of everything you got, including your internet connection. Uh, apparently, there's still stores where you can go buy it. I didn't know that. I was outmaneuvered at a particular time. It, it's what's going on behind the thing. Why, why does this thought, uh, this distracting thought come into your mind all the time? Right? If, if, you, if you struggle with this, the spirits don't inhabit you because you have the spirit of God, but they can easily shoot a fiery dart, which just gets in there, and you remember something from your old life that you wish you could forget. Or an accusation comes. Is that your voice in your head, or are you being attacked? What's behind the thought? People are constantly throughout this gospel going to the wilderness, and this is what I mean. They go out where there's no other comfort. They're following him around and they're saying, listen, I've got nothing else. The doctors have no answers for me. I, ha- I can't save my child. They keep throwing themselves into the fire. And Jesus says, let me take care of what's really going on. And he casts out demons and he forgives sins. And because he's the Messiah, he actually makes blind people see and dead people alive. He's dealing not just with people's circumstances, but what's really going on behind everything that you can see. Behind uh, the death of Job's children and his destroyed crops and his boils was the devil. All the brokenness in this world is the result of him who twisted us and bent us so that we don't work properly and he goes around just messing with everything with God's perfect world. God said, this is very good. And then Satan came and was like, let's have some fun. And so when you're struggling... What are you struggling against? I, I make this all the time. What's the actual enemy? Did any woman in a porn ever, when she was a little girl, is that what she wanted to grow up to do? Is she the enemy? Or, or what's behind all of that? Right? I, I have to make more money. I have to make more money. I have to make more money. Is, is the money the thing that we have to deal with? Or is there something behind the money? Mark doesn't conclude the confrontation in the wilderness because it doesn't conclude until chapter 16. He's making a point here. It's not a one-off. He's not just going to go out there and just have this confrontation with Satan and then it's over with. He goes into the wilderness and he stays there. And everyone else, as I've been saying for weeks, goes into their wilderness where they have nothing else but him, where they cry out to him, where they say, look, all I've got is this brokenness. All I've got is this sin. All I've got is this thing I can't do anything about. In that wilderness, where that's where he lives. It's, a, it's conflict with the forces of darkness behind the things that are giving us all kinds of problems. And, and what so often happens is there's Jesus in the, in the trench, on the 50 cal, rocking it, and, and he's saying, where's my spotter? What sin am I shooting at here? And there we all are. We don't want a wilderness, and so he's out there waiting, waiting. Do you want me to slay some idols? Do you want me to heal you? Do you want me to free you? Do you want me to make you a son of the living God? Come out here, come out here where all you have is me and watch me do my work. The confrontation is the point. 
Jesus goes out to confront Satan. That's Mark's point. He doesn't give us any other details because it's an ongoing thing for everybody who's in the story that we're reading and who reads the story. What happens? Right? There's clues. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because I done took care of that guy. He says it in chapter 3, verse 27. I bound the strong man. I tied him up and I left him. He's out in the wilderness, and now I'm just going to run to and fro like he's been doing all this time, and I'm going to now let everybody out of the cage he's been keeping them in. What's your cage? If you take it out to the wilderness, he'll deal with it. If you don't, he doesn't. He just doesn't. Back in verse 10, we read that the heavens were torn open, ripped open. The same verb is used to describe the splitting of the temple veil in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. What is opened may be closed, but what is ripped cannot easily return to its former state. Right? I can open a milk jug, but what happens when I rip the milk jug open? It's not, right? Where's all the milk? It, it, you can't put the plastic back together again. Once heaven is ripped open, it's a lot harder to close it. And, and I like it because, I mean, the image is, it's like something's on the other side who just can't wait to get out. <laughs> he can't wait to make his appearance. It's like he doesn't just knock, like people say. He rips open and he comes in power. It's not a gentle, it's not a gentle arrival. The ripping of the heavens is a violent metaphor. This is divine infiltration by God into the realm of men. The kingdom has come. uh, Jesus' baptism, it was a revolutionary act of humility that broke down the division between heaven and earth, making a direct confrontation with God possible. And that's exactly what he does. This is the problem. Satan, and the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of earth, which is Satan's. And what we need is this one here to invade down into the kingdom of earth and deal with Satan. And that's exactly what Mark says is happening. He's like, no, let's get right down to the real issue. I'm not going to waste any time talking about where John's parents come from. I'm not going to take any time talking about exactly what was said out in the wilderness. The important point that everybody needs to know because you're terrified of the wilderness is that Jesus is there kicking the crap out of his enemies. I'm going to hear about that word later from my kids, I know. <laughs> right? There's, there's no conclusion, sorry, because he goes on stomping on Satan's head for 15 more chapters. And then you are sitting there going, you know, the Spirit is leading me in this wilderness, and I don't want to go. If you want him, that's where he lives, in the wilderness. And he's there because he's manning the machine gun and he's ready to mow down everything that's holding you back from God, holding you back from peace, holding you back from hope, holding you back from life. Isaiah 64.1, Oh, that you, God, would rend the heavens and come down. That's what the whole world is waiting for. And Mark is, let's get down to business. (laughs) 
Heaven is ripped open. The spirit of God's power and might descend on Jesus, and Jesus is immediately taken to confront the usurping, usurping king of earth, the rebel, the pretender to the throne, the despot who holds us all in bondage with our sins and our fears and our decaying bodies. This, the, that serpent, Satan, the son that he fears, has arrived. And in that wilderness, Isaiah tells us what's going to happen. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of living water. What we want is to stay in the Barker lounger, sipping Bud Light, and have this, that peace of God. And, and he says, no, 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 no. Pick up, pick up that heavy cross and bring it out to me. Follow me. I'm already up on the ridge knocking off SS troopers like the mighty one that I am. Come up here. Come. And let's kill all, all, all the stuff that is going on behind what you see. All the stuff that's holding you back. All the stuff that you fear. All the stuff that's holding you in bondage. Let's go to work on it. That's what the people of God are about. Living in a wilderness where they're confronting sin. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Not just in our own lives, but in one another's lives. The love of the Father that Jesus has enjoyed for eternity is offered to you. And it's in him. And where is he? Is he in a barking lounger sipping Bud Light? Temptation comes to every single person in this room. And we think, why am I being tempted right now? What is this all about? Doesn't God love me? Aren't I his son? Aren't I his daughter? Aren't, isn't he pleased with me? Why is he unhappy with me? James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. How do we stand the test? What is our steadfastness? Who can make bent things straight? In the wilderness, there is only one comfort. There is only one hope. There is the mighty one, the holy one, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there's kind of two things here. One, you should all go to the wilderness yourself. Here are the temptations, and here is the failure. The other side of that is that every time you are tempted, you're already in the wilderness. And you're either going to say, you know, I have nothing else out here in this temptation except Christ. Or 
I have all these other things that are going to distract me, comfort me from the fact that I'm being tempted. So do you want, in that moment of temptation, you have to realize you're in the, you're in the wilderness already. Lots of people need to go into the wilderness. Lots of people are very confused about their own lives. They don't understand that they're not engaged in this process, this conflict. So what you need to do is, is both things. When it comes, take it on in the name of Jesus Christ. You're in the wilderness say, listen, I, I've got no, nothing, no other comfort, no other hope. You, Jesus, fight this fight. Or you know. You know it. You're sitting there and you know exactly, exactly what it is. And, and you're not doing anything about it. And, and you need to go out into the wilderness with that. And you say, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm a pretender. I'm a liar. I don't have it all together. I don't have it figured out. I'm constantly assailed by this. I constantly give in to this temptation. I don't take the way out. Please deliver me from it. Who can make your path straight? Who can set you right? Who overcomes the barrage of darkness in this world? John 16.33, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Run towards the machine guns and you'll get peace. On D-Day, when they got off the boats, they had to run towards the machine guns. There was no other way. If you want the peace of Christ, you have to go towards the conflict where he is. And he will be the one that gives you peace. The booze isn't going to, the pills, the porn, the money, nothing else is going to give you the peace. He gives you the peace. But peace comes after war, doesn't it? There's it's the only way to get it. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. What does the world offer you? Peace? Well, what was said for us this morning? What does it give you? All those pills, all that porn, all that booze, all that distraction, all that money, what does it give you but tribulation? In the world, you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome it all. He doesn't say this or that. I have overcome the world. Where do you live? And what's behind what you see with your eyes? This whole world full of darkness, full of temptation, full of bent people. Who has overcome it? And, and if you hold out, if you stay out of the conflict, if you don't engage in this conflict where the heavens are ripped open and, and the Spirit of God comes into your heart and, and brings this conflict right in here where it actually lives, if you just hang back, how much peace are you going to get? Step into the line of fire. Run towards the machine guns. He's already there, and like I said before, he's kicking the crap out of his enemies. Nothing can stand before him. Nothing. We are more than conquerors. Nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. You're, you're, you're confronted by it. Nothing will separate you. You've already done it. It can't separate you. He's overcome the whole world. John 
1 John 5, 4 through 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There is nothing to overcome in the world. There's only, it only appears that way. You try to overcome it with drink and sex and pleasure. You try to overcome it by trying harder, by earning more, by doing more. You sit in despair, and the world overcomes you. There is nothing to overcome in the world, only the appearance that there is, because Jesus has already overcome it. That's the actual conflict. Does he win, or does the temptation? Does he win, or the sin? He's already overcome the world. Believe it. Believe it. And when you do, what, what? You hear, you hear the ripping of heaven. You hear that voice. You feel the strength of the Spirit. You hear the voice of God saying, This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that is, that is a peace that we all need so, so desperately. Amen. Father, I pray for everyone here that they would go from here, Father, and that they would engage in the conflict in which you have already proven yourself victorious. Nothing can hold us back from the love of of your son but unbelief. We believe, Father, help our unbelief. We know that your son came into this world to throw down the powers of this world, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe that we would overcome the world in Christ by believing that he has overcome the world already. We thank you for him. We thank you for his victory. We thank you for bringing us here and participating in that victory. And we pray, Lord, that as we go from here, that we would not hide, that, that we would go into the wilderness where Jesus is defeating his enemies and that we would cast all of our cares, all of our sins, all of our worries on him and in him rise like lions roaring. Amen.